Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 21. And this is a passage which deals with the great confession of the disciples. Now Peter is the one uh, who will be speaking here, but as was often the case, Peter was the spokesman for all of the disciples. Uh, Peter was one to speak. Uh, to speak up and oftentimes to sometimes speak up without fully engaging brain. Um, So sometimes he got it right and when he did he hit the ball out of the park and other times he struck out. So uh, Peter was kind of like a major league slugger, pretty much a home run or a strikeout uh, seemed to be the pattern. And of course this is a passage which has gotten uh, mired down Uh, in church history for the last several hundred years over the whole controversy of of what is the role of Peter? Is Peter the rock on which the church has built? Of course, this has been a major contention between the Church of Rome and the Protestant churches, and and not only that, but also between the Church of Rome and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so I'm not going to get off in that controversy this morning because there's something more central and important going on in this passage, and that is the confession of faith by the disciples themselves. Uh, Because when you look at this passage, one thing that needs to stand out to us is that this passage is not fundamentally about who is Peter. It is a passage that is fundamentally about who is Jesus. And that's what we want to look at this week. Next week, we will get into the uh, what Jesus has to say about the church and Peter and the apostles and so forth. So with that background, let's then turn to the scriptures and let's read together, knowing that we have uh, set before us here the very words of God. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Our God and Father, we pray that by the Spirit you would open up your word to us today, for we know that it's futile for us of ourselves 
to approach this, uh, whether it is to have an understanding or whether it is to take it at heart. We know we're powerless to do those things. We are dependent upon you, O Lord, as we are for all of life. And so we pray that you would give us life this morning through these words, by your Spirit, that you would be magnified and that we would be built up and strengthened in the one true faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Up to this point, as we have seen, Jesus has retreated time and again to avoid conflict with the rulers. When they've come to him and challenged him, he has stood his ground, he has challenged them, he has exposed them, but then we'll have him retreating away, creating distance and creating time as he continues to minister to his disciples and then on to the multitudes who are following him. So we see up to this point this process and this pattern of retreating, not seeking to cause conflict and controversy. Um, He has avoided bringing things to a head. He's devoted himself to teaching his disciples. But we're going to see that now with this passage and then following closely on with this, Jesus disclosing his glory to the disciples when he is transfigured up on the mountain, he is going to shift Instead of staying away from Jerusalem, uh, going way up into Galilee, and then going out into the Gentile regions, we're going to see him turn his faith toward Jerusalem, and he is going to go from avoiding conflict to provoking it. He is going to deliberately force the action and bring things to a head. And this is the turning point in the Gospel. You can see the same thing in the Gospel of Luke, if you look at Luke chapter 9. Now, where all of this is going, as Jesus well knows, and as he instructs his disciples here, is the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. That's where all of this is headed. And what provides the turning point between these two directions is the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which we have in our text here. And there's a sense in which we can say that everything in Jesus' ministry so far has bring to bring the disciples to this point. To bring the disciples to the point that they are making of themselves, in their own words, this confession of faith. And so this passage demonstrates what we might call biblical confessionalism, or the biblical confessing of the faith which has to do with Jesus' followers, as imperfect as they are, confessing with their own mouths the one true faith. Later in the New Testament, as things begin to heat up between the Jews and the Romans, and the Jewish-Roman war is uh, impending, Jude is going to write to an epistle. It's a general epistle. It's not going to one particular church. It's going out uh, throughout all the churches. And he said, this. He will say, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He said, I found it necessary to write this. I found it necessary to write for you and to urge you to contend and to urge you to contend earnestly with all that you have for what? For the faith. Which faith? Well, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
Okay? Why did Jude find this necessary? He'll say because of this. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. Certain men have crept into the church unnoticed who deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Effectively, they're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. They're effectively denying who He is, and they're effectively denying what He did. And so Jude says, you've got to understand what your role is. You've got to understand what you're called to do in the midst of this kind of chaotic and disconcerting warfare, and that is to contend, to stand, to fight, to hold ground, and you're fighting for the faith, not a faith, not your personal faith, but the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the first step in contending earnestly for the one true faith is confessing the one true faith. How can you contend for something earnestly if you don't know what it is? If you haven't identified what it is? If, if the Christians and the disciples in every church aren't on the same page? And all confessing, they understand they have the same marching orders, that they're standing for the same thing. And that is exactly what Jesus is looking for here in our text. So let's pay careful attention and see what we can learn about this process of biblical confessionalism, or basically the disciples confessing the one true faith. Well, The first thing we need to see is that Jesus is the one who initiates this confessional process. This is not initiated by the disciples. It is Jesus who brings this up. And the way Jesus initiates this process is to call attention to what is out there. He calls the disciples' attention to what everybody else thinks. He says to them, Who do men say that I am? And what we see is, in response, a bunch of confusion, a bunch of half-truths. Jesus is a prophet. Well, that's true. That's true as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough. Okay? Or they think he's John the Baptist, or they think he's uh, like Jeremiah, and so forth. And so these are half-truths. We see confusion, and we also see error. The next thing we see Jesus do is then turn this around after he said, what do you see out there? What do you hear out there? What's going on out there? Well, it's a bunch of confusion and half-truths and errors. That's what we see. And then Jesus turns it to his disciples and he says this, well, who do you say that I am? Now that we know what's going on around there, now that we know all the chaos and confusion and error out there, I want to know what you say. Who do you say that I am. And he requires the disciples to articulate in their own words the truth. And he requires them to do so with sufficient insight and sufficient specificity to cut through the confusion, to correct all the errors and to set forth publicly the truth about who Jesus is and what he accomplishes. Now, it's important that we see that Jesus requires the disciples to use their own fallible minds. There is no process here whereby the disciples 
where God so-called just takes over their minds and they're suddenly infallible. He requires them to use sinful minds, fallible minds, and to articulate the truth in their own fallible words. This is not something we would likely do if we were there in the Lord's council up in heaven when God is talking about this process. I don't think we would leave it to people like us to do this. I think we'd say, Lord, you're just asking for trouble here. You're asking for trouble. Do you know who these people are? Do you know their sin? Do you know their immaturity? Do you know their fallibility? Do you know how confused they are? Do you know how many mistakes they make? This is, this is the wrong way to go about this. That, it wouldn't be our way, but it is God's way. It is God's way. And Jesus makes it clear that God is behind this process. When Peter articulates for the disciples this confession, Jesus tells him, it's not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you. You haven't come upon this on your own, Peter. Yes, you're involved. Yes, you're thinking. Yes, you're grappling with things. That's all true. But I want you to know that my Father in heaven, the Heavenly Father, has revealed this truth to you. My Heavenly Father is involved in this process. And of course, the way the Father reveals these truths to the disciples is through the Holy Spirit. And so we see all three persons of the Holy Trinity involved. We either see them expressly or we see it implicitly. We see Jesus involved, of course, expressly. Then Jesus says the Heavenly Father is behind all this. And He is working through this process to reveal the truth to disciples. And of course, we know by implication the way that the Father does that is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And blessing is what we see in response to the disciples' confession of faith. Jesus blesses them. And again assures them that God is with them in this process. Next, let's note the heart of the disciples' confession. The heart of their confession concerns the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, that is, the Anointed One. And the Anointed One in Israel, that's the same thing as Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew version. Christ is the Greek version. They both mean the Anointed One. And the Anointed One, when you look back in the prophecies of the Old Testament, all mean the King, the greater Son of David. The one who is both the Messiah of Israel and the King of the world. That's what Christ means. The Son of the living God. Son of living God not only means Jesus is the eternal God the Son, it also means that He is the new Adam. For the Son of God is the title that was given to Adam. And you can see that at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where you have the genealogy of of Jesus. Adam is called the Son of God. What this means is Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah of the Israel. He is the one fulfilling all the promises. And he's not just the king of Israel. He's the one who inherits the nations as his possessions and the end of the earth. He is the king of the world. That's who he is. And of course, that has implications as to what Jesus came to do, what he fulfilled. Because these are confessions of office, saying he is the Christ, 
saying He is the Son of God, the one who has instituted a new creation, the one who has made everything new, the one who is bringing about a new human race and a new heavens and a new earth. These are confessions of office that mean not only who He is, but also what He will do. And finally, we see that no sooner than Jesus blessing them for their faithful confession, that He begins to improve upon their confession. This is a great confession. They need to set it in stone, but there's more to come. We see in verse, 24, verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In other words, he gives them more truth, more understanding about what it means for him to be the Christ and the Son of the living God. This is how he becomes the king of the world. This is how he begins a new creation and makes everything new and begins to form about a new human race and begins to change the world. This is how he must go and die on the cross and be raised the third day. So this whole confession, the, uh, confessing the faith process is not a one-and-done process. It is a process that continues. It is a process that challenges and stretches the disciples. And we will see that exemplified in Peter next week, who will oppose the idea that Jesus is going to go to the cross. He rebukes Jesus. He said, God forbid that this should happen to you. And so he's rebuking Jesus for this, and then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter for opposing the things of God. And so we see that Peter and the disciples will have to continue to grow in their understanding and in their ability to confess the one true faith. And we also see that it is not a clean process. It is a challenging process. And it's not just between the disciples and the truth on the one hand and the world and error on the other hand. It's also a challenging process within the disciples themselves as Peter is about to learn. This is what confessing the faith looks like. This is what it's all about. This is biblical confessionalism. And as we turn to application... What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? There are a number of things I want us to really take to heart. And the first one is this. Confessing the one true faith is something that the risen Savior and God the Father and the Holy Spirit do with each and every generation of disciples. They do this for each and every generation of disciples. This is not something we simply look back on in some kind of a quaint way on this early confession. This is something we are challenged to do in our own day. Now, how does the risen Christ put each generation of disciples in this kind of situation and call for us to confess the faith in our own day? Well, he does it by placing the church in the midst of prevailing confusion half-truths, and error, and outright lies concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The confession which was sufficient for one day is not necessarily confess, uh, sufficient for a latter day. 
Each generation of disciples is placed in the same situation as the first generation of disciples. And we face the same challenges and the same calling to honor God in this way. We often hear in our day among evangelicals, no creed but Christ. No creed but Christ. But we need to see that Christ here required of his disciples a creed. He required of them a creed. And he is going to require them to add to that creed. And that is something that he does of every generation. Why does God do this? Why does God continue this challenging, uncomfortable, and messy process with each generation of disciples? Quite simply, it is to bring his church to maturity. In our text here, we see Jesus bringing the first generation of disciples to maturity. And that is something he does with each successive generation of disciples, each building on the other. It's very significant that Paul in Galatians pictures uh, the people of God as one true people throughout history. And he pictures the people of God in the Old Testament as being like God's child in minority. In other words, before coming to adulthood. That's the story of the Old Testament. Growing from infancy up through toddlerhood, up into young age, and up into the teenage years, and so forth. And then he analogizes the coming of Christ and the initiation in the New Testament as the coming of age. This is the coming of age. And so it's pictured in Jeremiah as God taking his law, which is outside, and bringing it inside. And isn't that really the definition of maturity when we look at our own children? When the things that you're telling them and you're placing around them outside, things like don't lie, believe in Christ, all these kind of things that are outside them, when it comes inside and it goes inside the heart and you see the lights go on and you see their hearts embrace it and you understand that they get it, it's like starting a jet engine. It starts with the, you know, you've got those, uh, they hook up those uh, powered carts that are providing the charge. They start spinning those turbines. And they start spinning them faster and faster and faster. And at some point in this process, which we can't tell, that turbine begins to spin on its own. Power is coming from within. And that's the way coming to faith often is for children who are growing up inside the church. And so Paul says you bring them up in the faith, not to the faith, in the faith. You begin to spin the turbines. And you spin and you spin and you pray and you continue to do that. And you go faster and faster until you see one day they're spinning on their own. It's coming from inside. God is doing this. And that's what it's all about. And so this is the process of maturity. And that's how we are to understand uh, church history. So Jesus does this with all of us to bring the church to maturity. And that's what Paul says the goal is. In Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, he says the whole goal and the whole reason that Jesus has given to the church, apostles and preachers and teachers and all the different gifts that he gives us, is to bring the whole church to maturity. And what is one of the signs of maturity? It's the very next verse, Ephesians 4, 14. He says that we should no longer be like children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. It's a sign of immaturity that whenever some lie arises, whenever some half 
truth arises, whatever a big gust of wind comes in, we get knocked off balance. We get knocked off balance. That's a sign of immaturity. Okay? Jesus is bringing us so that that's not happening. We confess the one true faith. Now, of course, there's many other aspects of coming to full maturity. Obedience, that's another big challenge. Understanding is one, confessing is one, but obedience, that's another whole challenge. But what I'm trying to say here is that while there are many other aspects of coming to full maturity as the church of Jesus Christ, this confessing the truth in the face of prevailing error is an integral and necessary part of coming to maturity. Next in application, I want us to see that confessing the faith is geared not only toward outright lies, but also toward half-truths and incomplete truth. Because as we've already seen, many of these things that the disciples are saying they're hearing out there, they're not completely wrong. They're partially right. But when they're presented as being the whole truth, it ends up being an untruth. A half-truth presented as the whole truth is a non-truth. Next, I want us to see that the battle for truth takes place, first of all, within the church. The battle for truth, yes, it does take place between the church and the world, but the first place the battle for truth always occurs is within the church, among the disciples of Jesus Christ. Note that all of these less-than-complete opinions cited by the disciples here are all coming from within Israel. They're all coming from the covenant community. They're not coming from rank pagans. They're not coming from rank idolaters out there who know nothing about the one true God. We have all this confusion and chaos that's brought up here. We haven't even gotten to the world yet. We're just talking about what's going on in the faith community. And the point is this. And this is something we need to learn. The church cannot even begin to combat the lies and errors and confusion until the world, in the world until it has taken care of the errors and confusions that are in the church. That's where the battle is always most pitched. Satan always fights truth all along the battlefront. That's true. He fights it all along the battle through. But Satan understands, even if Christians often don't, that the best place for him to attack truth is within the church. He wants to attack it as close to the font, as close to the wellspring as he can get. Where do we first see Satan attacking truth in the scriptures? In the garden. Not outside the garden, in the garden. The first place Satan wants to be is in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. He wants to be as close to the wellspring as he can get. Now, it is true, and we, and we see this very well, Satan wants to be in Washington, D.C. Yes, he certainly does. He wants to be in the chambers of Congress. He wants to be in the White House and in the Oval Office and in the Supreme Court. But the place that Satan wants to be far, far more than all of those places that we think are the most powerful places in the world is right here. 
If he had to make a choice, he would choose to be in the church more than anywhere else. Because Satan understands, even if we don't, that Christians are by definition the most powerful people in the world. And that's not because of who we are, that's because of who Jesus is. That's because of what Jesus is doing in the world. And Satan gets that. Now, if you look at things on the surface, you say, well, you, we can see the power in Washington. We can see that power. And we can feel it. And then we come together on Sunday, and here we are, and we look, oh, we look really powerful, don't we? We don't look anything like Washington, D.C. We're a bunch of sinners who often, we limp along, we often stumble along, we often do the wrong things, we often mess things up when we're trying to get the truth, we mess things up certainly when we're trying to obey the truth. We would never look upon ourselves as being powerful. But that's not the way Scripture paints us. Scripture paints us as being the people who are by definition the most relevant, powerful people in the world. And this is one of the challenges of the modern church because you're talking about immaturity. The church is just gripped with insecurity today. We're so trying to become relevant. We're so trying to, to have some potency. But we haven't even learned the lessons that we should have learned in middle school. Who is the most irrelevant, impotent kid in school? The one who is the biggest wannabe. The one who's always following the cool crowd around going, can I be like you? Can I follow you? Can I just be with you? Can I be like you? I want to dress like you. I want to walk like you. I want to act like you. I want to think. You know, that's the most irrelevant, impotent kid in school. And that pretty much describes the modern church of which we are part. And what Christ is saying to us, one of the things he's saying to us is that, would you stop acting like the needy kid in middle school? Would you understand who I've made you? It's not about who you are in yourself. It's about who I am. And you may look at yourself and all the problems you have yet, yeah, but I've, you're my people. You're my people. It's not about what you can do. It's, what about, it's about what I can do and what I will do. But you've got to stop taking your cues from those around you. You have to understand that you are the most relevant and powerful people in the world because you are my people. So Satan fights truth, first of all, within the church. Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay. He says, before that, you're the light of the world. Okay, you're the light of the world. We think, oh goody, but one of the things this means is that the world has no light but you. When Jesus was here, he says, while I am here, I am the light of the world. But you will be the light of the world, which means if the church has no light, the world has no light. So the fight for light starts in the source of the light, and that is in the church. If the church is not putting out light, the world has no light, and Satan understands the best place to fight light is by trying to snuff it out at the very source. The next thing we need to see is that Satan is the master of subtlety. We see that, of course, from the very beginning, from the first 
contest and battle over the truth in Scripture, which takes place in the Garden of Eden. He didn't attack the truth directly there. He sidesteps the truth. And he goes for something that is more assumed rather than is stated. And Satan understands it's often better for him to not attack the truth directly, but to undermine it indirectly. And so Satan, starting in the Garden of Eden and coming forward, he's always trying to get God's people to swallow some assumption, some hidden presupposition. Get them to swallow something that is contrary to the Scriptures. Because Satan understands that over time, those hidden assumptions will always, like leaven, work their way out over time. And they will effectively undermine the truth. So let's look at a couple of examples from church history going forward. We see what's going on with the disciples here in the first century. Let's look after the first century. The first big battle for truth after the first century was over the full humanity and divinity of Christ. Okay? It was over the full humanity and divinity of Christ. Now, at that time in the world, the Roman world, which was essentially, the culture was Greek. It was Hellenistic. In that world, the idea that God, the divine, would combine himself with the material world and a human body, and the idea that, that the perfect state that Jesus is leading us toward is not a bodily state, but a resurrected body, all of that was completely scandalous in the Greek world. Because they thought, you know, like Plato did, they either thought, you know, some of them thought that, well, there is no life after death, you had some of that. But the great majority thought that, that death is like the freeing of the soul. The idea of salvation is being disconnected from this material world because everything that's evil is somehow connected with matter. Well, of course, the Bible stands completely athwart that. God created this world, and He created it not only good, but very good. And so evil isn't a metaphysical concept. It's not attached to stuff and materialness. It's attached to the heart. It's a spiritual issue. It's an ethical issue. And so, but that's not the world they lived in. And so why, you know, the, tur- the church is tempted to think at that time, look, we don't need to get caught up in this secondary issue about whether Christ is fully human and fully divine. You know, I mean, the gospel and the faith is about, it's really about who Jesus is and what he came to do, his death on the cross and so forth. And so we don't don't need to stand or fall on these kind of secondary issues. And so for a time, the church is tempted to kind of go along with that. And so you have from within the church, you have Christians back then who are saying, well, Jesus is fully divine, but he only appeared to be human or he only took on part of humanity. He took on a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. So it's the Holy Spirit with a human body. It's kind of like God's hand in a, in a human puppet. Or you had other Christians that were saying, look, he's fully human, and he's really godly, and he's the only perfect man who's ever lived, but he's not God, okay? He's a lot like God, but he's not God. And so you have all of that going on within the faith community. But what the church had to come to realize 
is that if you deny the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ, it effectively undermines the efficaciousness of Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, it undermines salvation. Because if Christ isn't fully divine, then he isn't qualified to die on behalf of mankind, for he would be under the curse and not above it. And if Christ isn't fully human, he cannot fully save us. He can only save us to the extent that he has identified with us in our humanity. And so Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that it was necessary for him to be made like his brethren in all ways except for sin. And so the church then had to go back to the scriptures, not take its cues from the culture around it, not just take its cues from what exactly makes sense or how they can explain everything. I mean, exactly how can Christ be fully human and fully divine? Can you explain that? Can you explain how the Creator God entered into the creation and becomes part of the creation without ceasing to be the Creator God? Well, they couldn't explain it either. But it's real clear that that's what the Bible teaches. And they had to come to understand, you know, we have to go back to the Scriptures and we have to take our cues from there. And a lot of times the problems we run into is not with what the Bible teaches. The problem is when we try to explain how it works. Because there we learn that we are human. And our understanding can only go so far. And so they came to understand that confessing the faith gets to the point where we have, we have to identify with what Scripture has, says. We have to articulate it very well. And rather than arrogating ourselves into the position of thinking that we can explain all of this exactly so that it's going to bow down to the reason of man, it's not like it's non-rational. It's just that it goes beyond us. But we came to see that what the church did is in confessing the full humanity and divinity of Christ is they understood their job is to protect that paradox, to protect that mystery and that wonder of Christ being completely human in every way except for sin and also completely God. So the church had to expand the confession at that point. And the second big battle for truth after the first century was then over the Trinity. And there the church was forced to face another indirect attack on the person and work of Christ. Because if Jesus is fully human and fully divine, then what is his relationship with God? How can he be God and have a relationship with God all at the same time? Explain that to me. How does that work? Who is the Father that keep, Jesus keeps talking about in the Gospels? Who is the Spirit that Jesus keeps talking about in the Gospels? Are there three gods? Are there three gods? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three gods, contrary to the Old Testament bedrock confession that there is only one God? And if there is one God, then how can the Son or the Spirit be spoken of as God? Is there one God who appears in three different roles? kind of like an actor appearing in three different characters? Or are there three gods who have so much in common that we simply call them one because they're all united and they're really together? But there's really three of them. Well, the church had to realize that all these options, as opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity, 
had the effect of denying the one true God, or else the effect of denying the full divinity of Jesus, and thus effectively undermining the work of Christ by denying his person. And the church did not come to that conclusion immediately. It was a long, extremely messy process. There was a point in time, again, the temptation is for the church to say, you know, these are secondary issues. The gospel is really about, you know, the person and the work of Christ. It's about the cross. It's about the resurrection. And we don't need to get caught up in these secondary issues, talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know, is God one, is God three? You know, we don't need to get caught up in all those secondary issues there. And so there was a point in time where almost the whole church had gone into the Arian heresy of saying that God, you know, it is one, is one God who basically, modalism, appears at different points in time as the three different persons. Sometimes he appears as the Father, and he ministers as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. There was a point in time where pretty much the only big figure who was standing against that was Athanasius. And... They went to Athanasius at one point, and, and, and as he, he had been exiled about three different times over this because Arianism was so, had such a stronghold in the church. And they came to him one point, and they appealed to him, and they said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. He said, then Athanasius is against the world. You know, now, usually when you hear that, when you hear some Christian talk in that way, they're puffed up in pride, and they're off on their own, and nobody can talk to them. That's usually what it means, but that's not what it meant here. We see just how messy this process can get. The church, the true confession, is hanging by a thread, but God is still in control of the whole process. He brings the church back around to confess the Trinity, and Trinity is a word that doesn't appear in Scripture. It's a word they had to come up with to describe and protect what is in Scripture. And once again, they have to see, we cannot fully explain this, how God is both one and three, three eternal persons, and the one doesn't cancel out the three, and the three don't cancel out the one. We can't fully explain that, but it is our job to articulate that and to build a fence around it and to protect it and to confess it before the world. Now, in this process, we need to see that Christ always drives his church to one place, and that is to the Scriptures. He always drives his church back to the Scriptures. Yes, we're supposed to look around and see what everybody's saying. That's how we understand what we've got to contend with in our day. But we don't take our cues from there. We're always tempted to say, well, we don't need to get caught up in these secondary issues. We can sidestep this. Satan understands that if we do sidestep that and don't confess the, uh, the faith, you know, uh, in, in these points, uh, it will, over time, undermine the gospel itself. It will undermine the person and work of Christ. And that brings us then to our own day. So, if I say, look around, and who do people say Jesus is? How many different answers do you get today? They gave about three or four answers back then. How many answers do we hear today? How many answers do we hear just among professing Christians? I mean, tons. How could we even begin to count all the errors and the confusions in, in, in our own day? How then do we begin to say who we say Jesus is? 
in our own day. Well, while there's a lot of errors and confusion in our day, I want to point to one thing that I think is at the bottom of all of it. This is the root attack on the truth in our day. And once again, it is not a direct attack on Christ, but an indirect attack that has the effect of undermining the person and work of Christ. And this indirect attack goes all the way back to the Enlightenment, which was something that was occurring at the same time of the Protestant Reformation. So we're going back 500 years now, half a millennia. This, this lie goes back to that, and it's never been fully and effectively countered by the church in almost five centuries. And that is the attack on the scriptures as the word of God. The attack on the scriptures as the word of God. But once again, the fundamental thrust is not against the scriptures directly, but on what the scriptures teach about how we know how we know what we know. This is what you call in philosophy epistemology. Pistuo is the Greek word for faith. So epistemology, how do we believe what we believe? How do we know what we know? And the scriptures have a lot to say about that, and they assume a lot about that. And that is where Satan brought the attack on how we know what we know. Now, one of the most basic teachings of scripture Sometimes it's set forth explicitly, but it is assumed from beginning to end, is the teaching that Francis Schaeffer used to summarize by saying this, God is there and he is not silent. God is there and he has spoken. And we have God's words to us in the scriptures. So biblically, the most fundamental nature of truth the very bedrock of how we know is that God is there and He has spoken. And His inerrant and infallible Word is the Scriptures. And then based on that bedrock, we have a solid foundation for the reliability of our senses. We have a solid foundation for believing and knowing that there is a real correlation between what I think I see, a bunch of people sitting out here, I won't, t I won't get any more specific than that. Sometimes I want to have a pastor cam up here, you know, so you can see the guy that's, uh, see all kinds of interesting things. Um, but we have, we have a reason for knowing that when I see something, there's a correlation between my perceptions and a reality that's out there. And when I hear something, when I smell something and touch something, there's a correlation we have a sound basis for intelligibility, that we can truly understand things. We have a sound basis for logic, for understanding that you cannot have not A and non-A at the same time. Jesus cannot be both raised from the dead and not raised from the dead. It cannot be a matter of whatever's true for you. No, that's public truth. He either raised from the dead, whether you believe it or not, or he didn't. And that's the nature of truth. And therefore, we have a sound basis for science, scientific method and discovery and technology. And furthermore, we have a sound basis for ethics, for saying what ought to be and what ought not to be done 
And that, of course, gives us a sound basis for government and culture and society and law and everything else. Now, when the Enlightenment said this, this is what the Enlightenment said. Again, it didn't go directly at the scriptures. What it said was this. Man, beginning with himself and the world around him, using his senses and using his reason, can discover truth of himself. In other words, man is not dependent at the fundamental level on any kind of special revelation from God. Right? Now, what we see in the Bible is that that's not true. Because we have God speaking and giving special revelation to Adam and Eve before the fall. Before sin came into the world, God is communicating things to Adam and Eve which they could not know any other way. All right? So man was never meant to live apart from a personal relationship with God and special revelation from God. God is speaking before there's anybody there to hear. What we read in Genesis is that God created the heavens and the earth. And when we're told how, we're told each time that, And God said, let there be light. Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? We get this idea, this fundamental conception, that while God doesn't have to talk, he's free to not talk, we still get this this truth that it is nevertheless of God's fundamental nature to communicate, to reveal, to disclose, to put out the truth, just like it is his nature to love. And so we have the God who needs nothing creating everything. And we have that same God who was speaking always, and that is true before the fall. But the problem was is that with the Enlightenment is that the church swallowed this assumption. The church, again, is put on its heels, it's knocked on the defensive, and here's all this science and technology and everything coming about. Who can deny that? Well, that's all great, but that's all based on the world God has made and the truths that God has communicated for us. But the church swallowed the assumption and said, yes, you're right, man can, beginning with himself and the world around him, using his reason, using his senses, can come to truth on his own. Of course, they ascribe that to God. They say, well, that's the way God's created everything. But the problem is, is that once that assumption is granted, once it's brought into the church, it begins to effectively undermine the faith. It begins to effectively undermine the scriptures. Because what it immediately means is that other than telling us about Jesus, we don't need the scriptures. We need them to tell us about Jesus, yes, and to tell us about the cross and the resurrection, yes, we need it for that. But apart from that, we don't need the scriptures because God has made us where we can independently come up with truth everywhere else. And so what that really means is that had there been no fall into sin, essentially we'd all been deists. We don't need any personal relationship with God. We don't need any special relation uh, or revelation. We just go through life. We use our logic. We lose reason. We use our senses. Uh, and from that, we can develop everything we need to develop, not only technology, but also ethics and governments and morality and, 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 morality and all of that. We've got everything we need. Special revelation only became necessary because man fell into sin, and then it was only necessary to tell us how Jesus got here and then what he did. 
Well, over time, this led culture from Christianity into deism. You, th- you put out the personal relationship, you put out special revelation, they continue to hold God up there because it was too radical for society to just throw God completely out and say God is dead. So they posit him there, but he's pushed way, way, way off. But then the next thing that happens is naturalism, where there is no God at all. It is simply the cosmos. Because everything that is not intrinsically necessary to a particular system of thought will always be jettisoned over time. It may not be jettisoned by the first generation, but it will be by the second. And so no longer are we going to just posit this God out there. What do we need him for? What do we need him for? That's just baggage. We get rid of that. And then you have a pure naturalism. And then you have Darwinism coming about, which is simply providing a, a kind of a mechanism, a construct, a theory as to how everything can come about with a purely naturalistic cosmos. And then with Darwinism comes in all the presuppositions and assumptions of pure naturalism so that we have what we have today. If it's not purely naturalistic, if it does not up front as a philosophical commitment exclude the possibility of God and the supernatural, then it's not science. That's where we are today. The church swallowed these assumptions, and even at the time of the American uh, War for Independence, and even at the time of the Constitution, you had uh, Christians, good Christians, teaching the truth of Jesus Christ, teaching about God, teaching the Scriptures, and yet at the same time, when it came to anything but salvation thinking we do not need the scriptures and therefore we will not use the scriptures. And I'm talking about some really good Christians. I'm talking about John Witherspoon, who trained so many of the presidents and vice presidents of the early American periods, signer of the Declaration of Independence. What you found increasingly, even in the seminaries, is that when they're not talking about the plan of salvation itself, when you're talking about ethics or morality They didn't use the scriptures because they believed that God has given us the ability to come up with all of this on our own using our reason and our logic and our common sense. And of course we will come up with all the same conclusions that the scriptures would anyway, right? And that can work for a little bit because if everybody's Christians who've been schooled in the scriptures, they probably are going to come up with the same conclusions. But that's going to quickly end. And that is exactly what happened. So what is, what, how's the church done in this battle? Lousy. Lousy. Done. We've done a bad job. We've been put on the defensive. We swallowed the assumptions. And it has leavened itself through the church and out through society ever since. And we're about to the end of that tether. And so you, what you see then is that this is not a secondary issue. This doctrine of epistemology and how we know what we know and the doctrine of the scriptures, they're not secondary. What is at stake we now see, or we, you still have a lot of the church that doesn't see this, but we need to see this. What is at stake is everything. So you have modern theories now that talk about the scriptures and that, well, God, the scriptures are not directly the word of God. They contain the Word of God. They testify to the Word of God. They testify to God's infallible Word, but they are not 
God's infallible word. Because God doesn't really communicate in words and propositions and ideas like that. That's kind of that's kind of a low base second rate form of communicating anyway. God communicates through a direct engagement with people, through the person of Christ, somehow. And that's what the scriptures are talking about. They're a good testimony to it, but they aren't it. And so we don't have to concern ourselves with like, oh, you know, there's all these contradictions and errors in the scriptures, and we go, oh, you know, that doesn't matter. Yeah, they're there, but that's not really the Word of God. They're just testifying to the Word of God. Well, the process is that's a, that's a cancer which continues to eat and eat and eat before you have nothing left. So what part is the Word of God? You tell me that. And what we start to see is that, again, this whole thing has leavened its way through, and this is not a secondary issue. Jesus is calling the church today to confess the truth with regard to the scriptures. And we have to do that by confessing the truth that we were never meant to be apart from the special revelation, the words of God. The words of God. God used words before any of us were there. God used words before there was any sin. And we have to go on the offensive. We need to go on the offensive. We need to reject the assumptions. Once you swallow the assumptions, the game's up. It's over. We've got to reject the assumptions. And we have to keep the battle at the fundamental level, which is over the assumptions that are being made. These assumptions that, God, that man needs no special revelation from God, that on his own, with his own logic and reason and so forth, he can get everything he needs to get. We need to keep the battle there because that's where the battle really is. And we need to go on the offensive, and we need to say to the world and the naturalistic community, we need to say, put up or shut up. Show us how you know there's any correlation between the molecules in motion in your head and your perceptions and the molecules in motion that are out there. Show us what makes some molecules in motion true and other molecules in motion not true. Explain that to us. Explain intelligibility, which you obviously assume by the fact that you keep talking and writing books and telling this naturalistic story and trying to convince us how do you do that? Why do you do that? What makes some molecules in motion good and other molecules in motion evil? And what you start seeing, and some of the postmoderns are starting to say this, there really is no basis. And even Darwin feared this. It was his great fear that he confided privately. He understood the implications of his naturalism. That if everything is just molecules in motion, then everything is molecules in motion. And every one of your perceptions is just molecules in motion. The same random molecules in motion that started out creating a single cell organism and supposedly ended up with the Prince of Wales. Same one. And all of your ideas of right and wrong and good and evil, and true and false, it's all just molecules in motion. Darwin understood that, and he feared it. He feared it. That's where we need to keep the battle, on the offensive, confessing the one true faith, confessing the scriptures of the, as the word of God. These are not secondary issues. 
Well, I commend all of these things to you. And let's embrace the fact that God, Jesus, has put us in this situation. This is not a mistake. And He's calling us to do what they had to do. And that is confess the one true faith with sufficient specificity and biblical accuracy to cut through all the confusion and the errors in the lies that are out there. This is how Jesus brings the world to salvation and us to maturity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.